into December when the countdown to Christmas has begun. I know in the shops it began a couple of months ago, but no, officially it has now begun. And in our build-up to Christmas, our series called He Is Called, um, based on some material that comes from Life Church in the States, we're looking at the names of God that are given in Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, Anne started us off on this by looking at Wonderful Counselor. And she talked about the fact that the word wonderful actually means wonderful beyond what words can say. And that in God being a wonderful counsellor, he is somebody there that we can be honest with and he will provide us with wise counsel. He will give us guidance. This week, we move on to the next phrase, mighty God. And in order to understand what Isaiah is saying here, I want us to start by going even further back than Isaiah. Going back to a man named Jacob. Jacob, I'm sure you all know, had 12 sons. And I'm sure we all know the story of how Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat ended up in Egypt. And then when the famine hit Canaan, Jacob and the 11 brothers followed Joseph there. And in Egypt, they stayed for 400 odd years. And the family grew and grew and grew till it wasn't a family anymore. It was a whole nation. And then Moses came along and led that nation out of Egypt, wandering in the desert for 40 years until they reached the promised land. And it was Joshua who then took over from Moses and led them into the promised land, where the 12 tribes, based on the sons of Jacob, were each allocated their own area of land. Now, after Joshua, there were a series of judges. The people of Israel asked God for a king, and God turned around and said, no, I am your king. The other nations may have kings, but you don't need one. And so judges ruled over. And the stories of them are recorded in the book of Judges. And one of those was a man named Gideon, and his story we can find in chapters 6 to 8 of the book of Judges. At the time of Gideon, they were being invaded by the Midianites. They'd been oppressed for some time. We don't know how long, but it talks about the fact that each time they planted crops, the Midianites would raid and take all their food. So it must have been going on for some time. And the Israelites had moved to living in caves and in the mountains to try and avoid being attacked by the Midianites. Things aren't going well. And God appears to this young man, Gideon, and says, I want you to lead my nation, my people, to free them from the Midianites. Well, in chapter 6, verse 15, we find Gideon's response. How can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in my tribe, and I am the least in my family. But God says, yes, it is you. It's you that I want. Gideon takes a little convincing. He tries testing God and setting him challenges. He says, right, okay, if I leave a fleece out, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. And God does it. So he says, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. And God does it. And eventually Gideon gives in and says, right, okay, I'll do this for you. Right, we're going to have to drive out the Midianites, he thinks to himself. So, we're going to need an army. And off he goes, and he assembles an army of over 30,000 men to try and drive out the Midianites. But God says no. Verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. So God makes him get rid of most of the men. He goes from 30,000 men down to 10,000 men, and God says, no, that's still not enough. And eventually, he's down to just 300 men. So the least member of the weakest tribe, with a tiny group of men, goes out to fight the Midian army. And of course, in God, they are successful. They don't just push them back a bit. They drive them out such that the Midianites never attempt to invade Israel again. A mighty, mighty God indeed. We'll come back to that story in a bit, but if we move on in the history of Israel, we find that after 200 years of judges, and Israel saying, can we have a king? And God saying, no, I'm your king. And Israel saying, can we have a king? And God saying, no, I'm your king. After 200 years, God says, right, okay, you can have a king. And Saul is anointed king. And he's then followed by David. And we know at this point, Israel really enters its golden period. It becomes a real power in the area. And then when David's son, Solomon, follows David, he builds the temple and we read stories of how the other nations look up to the, what is happening in Israel. But this golden period doesn't last long. And after Solomon's death, the nation splits in two. The southern kingdom known, becomes known as the kingdom of Judah, just made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They're loyal to Solomon's son. But the other tribes, the northern tribes break away into a separate kingdom, appointing their own kings, which the Bible tells us one after another after another turn their back on God and are terrible kings. This goes on for a couple of hundred years until around 700 BC when the Assyrian Empire to the north of Israel starts to expand, starts to try and take over land across the whole region. And it comes and it conquers the northern kingdom entirely, carrying them off into captivity, never to return. The southern kingdom does escape being totally destroyed, 
but many of its cities are destroyed, we're told, and it's only by paying all the gold and silver in the temple that they're able to avoid a total conquest. And it's at this time that the man named Isaiah appears as a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's in this context that he brings the words that we read in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, the Bible doesn't always give us exact dates in the way that we might like in a modern history textbook. So we don't know the exact timeline. But when Isaiah talks at the start of chapter 9 about the humbling of Zebulun and Naphtali, it's quite probable what he's talking about is the the start of Assyria taking over the northern kingdom. Because Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the tribes that were at the most northeastern part of Israel, where Assyria would have been coming from. And then in verse 4, Isaiah says, as in the days of Midian's defeat. So Isaiah can see Assyria coming. He can see that Israel and Judah are under attack. And he's reminding them that they have a mighty God, who can defeat these enemies, can defeat them with just 300 men. He is a God who can do anything. And it's in this context that Isaiah makes this prophecy and describes God as a mighty God. In the original Hebrew, the term is El Gibor, El is a common name for God. And it means basically God Almighty. So, in a way, it's already Almighty God, just in that one word. And then the word Gibor also means mighty, but more in the context of a mighty warrior. It's used a couple of other times in the Old Testament. In Samuel 17, Goliath. The giant is described as Gibor. And then in 2 Samuel 23, the same term is used to describe David's elite soldiers. He's SAS, if you like, the best of his best. So, almighty, mighty warrior. Martin Luther translated the term as hero. So when Isaiah uses the term El Gibor, he's talking about the mighty, mighty God, the almighty warrior, the almighty hero, the one for whom nothing is impossible. And we know that this is true. Our God is a mighty, mighty God. The Greeks used the term omni, to describe the characteristics of God. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Nothing is too difficult for God. And we see that throughout the Bible, as well as defeating the Midianites. Right from the start, God creating the world. Imagine the power that it took to create the world. 
And we see throughout the history of the Bible that nothing was impossible for God. From Abraham and Sarah having a baby, even though she was well past childbearing age, to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There were many, many verses I could have picked. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In Mark ten twenty-seven, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Job 42 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is a mighty, mighty God. One who doesn't need 30,000 soldiers to defeat the Midianites. He can do whatever he wants. But while I know that, I know there are days when I find it harder to accept. I know there are days when I question, is God really mighty, mighty? When prayers go seemingly unanswered. When the news is full of stories of war and famine and disasters. When there's sickness and suffering, poverty and injustice out there in the world. How can there be a mighty, mighty God? Stephen Fry was being interviewed by Gay Byrne on Irish TV and he was asked what he would say to God if he were to meet him. And his reply was, I'd say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. Why? Why did you do that to us? And there are days, I know, when I question, well, maybe he's got a point. I remember some good friends of mine who were told that their unborn child had a condition that meant he would not survive. After many weeks of prayer, they had several well-meaning friends tell them that their son would be fine, he would be healed. But when the time came for him to be born, there was no healing. And he died after just a few days. And I questioned, where is this mighty, mighty God? But I'm not alone in this. Many have questioned God. Gideon in Judges 6.13 says, But if the Lord is with us, 
Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us over to the hand of Midian. Psalm 74, the psalmist says, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Even Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Questioning is natural. Wondering isn't, there's nothing wrong with wondering. Maybe today you're asking that same question. Maybe today your life is looking rough. Maybe there's a relationship that's causing you pain. Maybe it's money worries that are just getting worse with Christmas approaching. Maybe you've had a dream for many years and it just doesn't seem to be coming true. And you say to yourself, God, where is your power? Well, this morning, I want to remind you that he is a mighty, mighty God. But we need to read the whole of Isaiah 9-6. It starts, for to us, a child is born. God is a mighty, mighty God. But he didn't come as a mighty, mighty warrior, as a king riding on a war horse, leading an army to victory in battle. He came as a baby. Because his ways are not our ways. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Part of that means he is so totally other than us, so different that his ways are not our ways. He doesn't do things the way we want him to. He doesn't do things the way we would expect him to. He is a mighty, mighty God. And I want to look at three ways in which his power is at work and we can see him as mighty mighty God. Because his power is at work in us, his power is at work for us, and his power is at work through us. So, the power of God at work in us. Writing in Philippians 2.13, Paul wrote, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Now I know some people can't tell you exactly when they became a Christian because for them it was a gradual process. But I know many people can pinpoint a moment. I can tell you it was 10 o'clock on the evening of the 31st of March 1984. I can take you to the bus stop on the London Road in Billericay where I was standing, 
when I reached the conclusion that yes, God is real and I want him to be my saviour. That was an enormous moment. That was a moment that changed my life forever. However, it didn't entirely change me instantly. I was still the same boy with the same problems and the same faults and the same hang-ups that I'd had before. It was just that now I'd invited Christ into my life. 35 years later, I'm a very different person. But that has been the work of 35 years. Now, part of that is just that I've got older. But a large part of that is for 35 years, a mighty, mighty God has been at work in me. And he's still not finished with me. I'm still not perfect. I'm close. (laughs) But I'm still not there yet. But it's only through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me that I can be made more Christ-like. It is only because he is a mighty, mighty God that I can be changed from the self-centred person that I was to the person full of love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control that are the fruit of the Spirit. Anyone who's tried to make changes to their lives knows how difficult it is. I smoked for nearly 20 years. For about 19 and a half of those, I was trying to give up. Recently, I've had to go on rather severe diet, and I know how hard that has been. Making changes to yourself isn't an easy thing to do. But the power of God works in us to change us, to make us the people he wants us to be. That is a mighty, mighty God. He's also a mighty, mighty God in that he works for us. In Isaiah 40 we read, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Maybe this hits home for you today. You're tired, worn out, exhausted. It took everything in you just to get to church this morning to get the kids in the car and out the door. It's coming to the end of the long, long year. Maybe it's hard physically, maybe it's tough mentally. The good news is, God gives strength and power to the weary. He will lift you up. 
And in fact, it's only when we are tired, only when we feel that we don't have the strength to carry on, it's only when we're at our weakest that often we will allow God in to help us. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a bit like Gideon. It was only when the 3,000 had been whittled down to 300 that God was able to work through him. Our pride means that we don't want to admit that we can't do it ourselves. And so we try, and we try, and we try, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail. So often it is only when we are at our weakest that we allow the power of the mighty, mighty God to take over. And it's so much better than when we do. That's why Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the power of the mighty, mighty God in action for us, taking our burdens, carrying us when we can walk no more. Which leads me to the third point. Jesus' power at work through us. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And that's my heart for today. Not that you'd be impressed by my wise words, but that the power of the mighty, mighty God might be at work through me, enabling you to hear what he wants to say to you today. After all, I'm just an ordinary bloke. Nothing special about me. But God has chosen to use me in this way. And it's only by allowing the power of the mighty, mighty God to work through me that I'm able to stand here before you. And it's not just preaching this applies to. Our musicians are talented musicians. But it is by them allowing the power of the mighty, mighty God to work through them that they are able to lead us 
not just in singing, but in worship. And the prayer team only do what they do in the power of the mighty, mighty God. And the people making the coffee and the stewards and the PA only do what they do through the power of the mighty, mighty God. And it's not just formal jobs either. A fortnight ago, many of you will have been here when Darren talked to us and mentioned the giving tree. And I felt that something needed doing about the giving tree. Now, it's not really my kind of thing. I'm quite happy standing here and talking. That's my thing. But getting involved in organising something, that's not my thing. I could have quite easily stepped aside and said, oh, I'm busy preparing a sermon, I can't get involved. But in the power of the mighty, mighty God, I said, no, something needs to be done. Somebody needs to try and coordinate this. I will give it a go in the power of the mighty, mighty God. And while on the subject, if there is anyone who's got anything else, if you want to bring it up to the table after, I will be taking them all tomorrow to CCM for them to start wrapping. And thank you very much for everything you've brought. It's great. But... um, And there are other things, everyday things, where the power of the mighty, mighty God can make a difference. It may just be listening to somebody who needs to talk. Or getting a bit of shopping for a neighbour who needs some help. But whatever it is, we can do it according to Philippians 4. We can do all this through him who gives us strength. We have a mighty, mighty God. An almighty hero of a God who can do anything, literally anything. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do, says the chorus. And he chooses to work in us, to transform us, to make us the people that we ought to be. And he chooses to work for us, giving us the strength that we need day by day. And he chooses to work through us, taking what we have and multiplying it, and turning it into something special. We have a mighty, mighty God who will do anything for us.